This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And with a big thank you. Thanks, guys. With a big thank you to Monique Sabir for the last three hours of Out on the Patio, we'd love to welcome you to the 25th anniversary of Bite Into It. We'd like to... We would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land uh, on which we meet today and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and future, and extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who might be here tonight or listening. Thank you. We are coming at you live from Melbourne Knowledge Week at the uh, meat market in North Melbourne. It's free. If you're around, please come down and join us. There's plenty of space. It's nice and cosy. There's drinks and there's plenty of warm voices on air tonight. And we're so excited to have a screen that we can show the people who are present tonight so that um, they can check things out. We also have a Facebook Live going. So if you couldn't make it in person, you can tune in there and hopefully, yeah, see some really cool stuff tonight. Uh, for, well, we would like to thank um, the people who have made this show uh, what it is over the past 25 years. Um, some of them are here tonight, some of them aren't. Uh, in no particular order, uh, Phil Wales, uh, Byron Scullin, uh, Rita Arrigo, uh, Chuck, Andrew, Karen Favell, uh, Ben Finney, who I think I saw floating around, uh, Ed Borland, uh, who always managed to have an IT conversation with me, um, Georgia Webster, Dave Slutskin, uh, Ryan... Yeah, Ryan Egan, Miyuki Jokiranta, uh, Yose Patton, Jay McCormick, Maze Wallen, Dan Golding. Big apologies to anyone who've missed. The history does go back 25 years and the technology keeps changing and we might have lost some things in the archives. They're probably on an A-track somewhere, um, bios of people who made Byte amazing. Um, massive thanks to our current team as well. Uh, some of them are here tonight, um, some of them can't be here. Uh, Cassandra Wright, Colin Jacobs, James Noble, uh, Joe Eaton, Dan McGanty. Uh, Tyler Smythe, San Huang, Laura Summers, Dan Stammen, uh, and you'll see both of the last two of those here tonight. So uh, I think we wanted to uh, make this a very future-focused um, edition of the show. Um, we have come a long way. Uh, we started with live hardware upgrades and kind of uh, hardware type stuff, uh, more calls to action on uh, OS updates, much of the reporting um, is kind of fairly similar. Interviews with developers, academics, um, artists, engineers, technical specialists. Um, Maybe the studio smells a little bit less like soldering irons these days, which is great for us. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit better, but um, yeah, And the changing. whole battle between Apple and Microsoft really did die down after those times. I mean, I remember when Bill Gates was the devil instead of an amazing philanthropist. Mm. It has changed a bit, but yeah, where are we going in the future, do you think? Look, I think that um, we have increasingly been really thrilled with the broad amount of community involvement with technology to help solve problems that everyday people have. And we've really tried to bring that into the show. Tonight, we have three guests who we think are leading the way in their fields and really help us imagine um, what we might be doing with technology tomorrow and into the future. So uh, I hope that you enjoy this kind of forward-looking bite into it tonight. Yeah. Laura, do you want to talk to us about the person sitting to your right? Well, very happily. So I'd like to introduce Amy Gonzalez-Cameron. She's amazing. She has worked across education and technology, and especially technology learning, um, for a number of companies, including traditional um, organizations like Harvard and some of the big tech companies like Uber. Um, she has a really interesting and sort of diverse background in that space, and we're here to talk to her about what the future of learning might look like. Good. So welcome, welcome, Amy. Welcome, Thank Amy. Thank you so much. 
Um, so to kick it off, um, we're here to talk about this very interesting disruption that's happening in education learning, particularly around tech, which is this new boot camp, um, like sort of alternate learning, private learning company thing, which is disrupting traditional um, academia, like traditional computer science courses. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about like the overview, like what's happening with these companies and like why are they coming into the market and what, what is the alternative they're providing? Yeah, so I think traditionally universities, I mean, they've been the bastions for so long, and it's just such an arduous process to change anything with them. And you, I know, like, my experience, you have to go through the Board of Regents, and you have to make cases and all that. And so these companies are like, listen, we have tech, and we have smart people, and we're innovating in this space. Let's just be agile, and let's do this. And mm -hmm. so boot camps started to come on the scene in the United States, like, right around, I think, 2010, 2011. Uh, Dev Boot Camp was the first uh, in that space. And they're just like, listen, we have a gap here. We need, we have people who need jobs and we have companies that need people and there's a lot of interest in developing these tech skills let's just let's just get in there and let's match those things up and let's make this happen and it was this really interesting fast uh fast way of meeting a need in the economy mm -hmm. I love that you say that because so many grads I speak to uh, tell me about their first job opportunity and I say, did it use something that you learned in your degree? And they're like, well, kind of. I did something on the side where I actually developed my first, yes. you know, coding skills or what have you. Oh, everybody has one of those like chance things, like that serendipitous moment when they had like some weird, like for me too, I mean, I was the director of operations at a nonprofit and I had to help with the website for a while and I was like, oh crap, I like this better. <laughs> <laughs> so universities are so keen to bring these sort of things in yes. and traditionally the way they've done that is by farming out students who are maybe third year out to industry. Right. What are we seeing instead with this type of boot camp model? So at that, yeah, so internships and externships and all that, which I've had a lot of fun talking to um, my new friends in Australia about, because they're like, what are those, why? Uh, and so traditionally, yeah, third year, fourth year students would go out, they would spend some time in the real world, and then they'd come back to the playpen, and they'd finish up their degree, and then they'd be ready for work, capital R, capital F, capital W, T, M, bing. And now we're seeing like, hey, I've got all this other experience, and it plays a role, and I need to bring that to the forefront. And these boot camps are saying, you matter, you can still do this you're relevant, we're here to help you. And let's, let's figure out how to get those skills activated and add on to them and then really prepare you. And let's not have you worrying about three or four years and how are you going to, you know, you can't plan for that always if you have a family or if you're trying to navigate a skill, uh, like a, a skill shift in your current job and you, you need to find a way to stay relevant. To be fair, the education system can't keep up with the pace of change in industry as well. Like right. if you were going to school for four years, by the end of it, a new technology would have popped up. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, it's now React is the norm, but I think four years ago, no one would be saying, oh yes, you're definitely gonna get employed doing a React job. So these things are happening and changing so fast that I think at least part of the appeal of the bootcamp model is that they're teaching you the thing you're about to go do in a program and education really struggle, like the, the higher education programs are really struggling to meet that pace of change. Until now. Until now. Oh. Well, Amy, you were telling me an interesting thing that UC Berkeley has started to do. Do you want me to like, oh. bring that up? Because that's, yeah. that's yeah. a good one. Like, this is talking about these two different models. UC Berkeley was kind of like, why not the both? Yeah. So, I mean, in addition to three to four year degrees, I know um, Australia has really cool stuff around like registered trade organizations, and they've got a whole area monitoring all these alternatives uh, for folks who want to get certifications. And in the US, that often looks like an extension school mm -hmm. at a traditional university. So it's where you know, working professionals can come back and sharpen their skills or add on some skills and kind of level up and get ready for the next thing. And so they've had that for a while, which I, and so when boot camps came on the scene, I thought, well, 
what's weird? Why doesn't anyone go to just Berkeley and get an extension mm -hmm. degree in what you know software development? Um, but whatever the reason might be, now these universities that have these programs are saying, oh, well, wait a minute. So Berkeley actually just came up with their own boot camp. But that's the thing. It's not Berkeley. It's actually Trilogy. It's a different curriculum, and it has a Berkeley skin on top of it. Huh. It's a, like a Berkeley shell. Don't trust the brownstone places to deliver us contemporary education. Well, yeah, and that's an interesting like line of inquiry because then I mean we I know we won't be able to do that tonight, but it makes me wonder. Okay, so we have the trust of the UC system, UC being University of California, and we have the agility and up-to-date sharpness of the trilogy curriculum, which I've never examined. So I think I just paid them some free marketing, and I'm sorry, I don't know them. Um, and and. But you've got the, you're marrying those two things. So now you've almost got, I wonder, maybe a perfect hybrid. I don't know. So for a while there, it seemed like the massively um, open online courseware would be disrupting the universities a oh, lot. Yeah. And they mm. thought their audiences were going to go there and people were going to pay. It didn't quite pan out that way. Why do you think this bootcamp model has a, a real chance to, to succeed? You know, there's a lot. This it starts to go into an area that we kind of promised each other we wouldn't go into. Oh, but sorry. that's okay because it's really about the whole idea of like scalability. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're trying to think about the ed education as an enterprise and trying to scale it, that's where people got really excited. But the problem is we don't really have a strong enough grasp on what makes good teaching good and what makes effective learning effective to yeah. be able to scale like that. So. The MOOCs were very uh, impersonal and they were easy to drop out of and there really wasn't any way to find and keep that engagement. Um, so hopefully boot camps by blending online and in-person learning, they're able to find that sweet spot in the middle of, I'm, I'm really like literally and figuratively bought into this and I, mm -hmm. this matters to me and this has a direct outcome attached to it that I want to stick to. Let's talk about price, like talking about buy-in, right? Because price is part of the value of the thing that you attach to something. And I, I'm just interestingly thinking about MOOCs, like I do wonder if people not having to pay for it in some ways devalue it. Well, some of them were paid, yeah. but, but smaller well, sort of like segments of payments as well. I, I yeah. lost like, oh, I don't know, $200 on $50 courses that I was like, I'm gonna do this. No, I'm not. No, it didn't happen. <laughs> but yeah, like 50 bucks is different to say 10,000, mm, um, which right. is maybe what people are paying for a boot camp, or 20 to 30,000 is when they're going for a year of university. So there's certainly a different scale and an idea, like model in your head of what that means. Mm. Um, so we've talked a little bit about this before, like this idea that these private companies are giving courses that are mostly not accredited. So you don't necessarily get any sort of formal qualification, but their pricing is kind of in this weird middle point where it's definitely not like free and it's not quite university level, but it's certainly not cheap. Um, so how do we how do we sort of assess the value of those those price points and like these these courses that are like you know about a semester long or a little bit less and how do we compare that to the university system and you know which may be more understood but also maybe not providing the up to dateness in terms of value for those students. You know that's something that I'm still kind of exploring because I for so in San Francisco we had there was a, a nonprofit called uh, Dev Mission that was trying to connect. Um, like lower socioeconomic students with opportunities in tech, and they uh, and they were pushing them into boot camps. And I was like, but UC Berkeley again is they're offering a web a web development certification for three thousand dollars total for two years of coursework or or a year depending on how fast you complete it. And they'll have UC Berkeley behind them. It's an actual degree. Why would you send them to a boot camp when they have have to take out a loan for that for twelve thousand dollars? 
I don't understand. And so the board gets excited. Oh, the boot camp. Oh. It's it's shiny and exciting, and I you know and 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 again like I don't want to create a debate around like whether that's a good or a bad thing. I think uh, it it comes down to also there's a couple of streams of value here. It's like okay, I value this boot camp. It's going to do what I say, and I'm happy to pay this money because I really want to see results, and they're promising me results, and this is good. And I don't want to go to traditional education. It's kind of crusty and maybe whatever. And it's like I don't want two years. So they don't even know that it's only three thousand dollars perhaps, and they. And they're like, oh, I can get this paid back. Some boot camps are saying, you know, you don't have to pay us a penny until or a cent or whatever until you get your first job. So that's pretty appealing as well. Whereas the extension schools, you do have to pay up front. Um, but mm-hmm. to me, the uh, the value too is more. Uh, well, I lost the train of thought on that one, <laughs> but we can go in another direction with that. Um, so just a couple of stats. I was trying to find Australian stats, and unfortunately, I think we're just a few years behind what's happening in America. So like, I couldn't find good stats for how many people are taking these courses here. Um, but in the states, like last year, there was about just under 23,000 graduates in 2017, compared to just under 80,000 people doing computer science degrees in universities. So you know, we're talking a reasonable size of the market, right? Like a reasonable chunk out of the market. Um, and certainly, like that question about about price and value, um, like which is something we've chewed over a lot. Like it's, it's. I think it's worth considering um, that some of those courses that are offering these things free until you get your first job are then employing those students for six months ish, but not necessarily like getting them a real job. But let's also not kid ourselves that this is a completely new model. I mean, there was a company totally. doing this in in Melbourne specifically. You know. Years ago, I, I remember someone's big sister was doing some sort of uh, computer company course like that, and they'd give you your first placement, and it really worked for some people, and it didn't for others. And but placements are different than the actual training facility employing you, and like yeah. that's that's kind of a bit of a tricky mm. get out of jail free card thing. But yeah, the, the the big question, like when I was googling General Assembly, I noticed that there were some interesting Google autocompletes, including. Um, does General Assembly actually get you a job and is General Assembly worth the money? So um, I think, you know, like obviously these are questions that not just us, not just we are asking. Um, and certainly I think it's, it's hard when you have a market that's like really, really desperate for seniors who are immature and like even midweights who have some experience under their belts but really a little bit shy about hiring juniors and then he flood it with people who have a reasonably short qualification and look kind of the same from employers' point of views. So there's... Employment results are the same across all types of education facilities, though. Like, we mm-hmm. don't look at law at Melbourne and go, are these people getting jobs? Because mm-hmm. they also, you know, it's tough. Like, everywhere is tough. We're churning out more people than we have jobs for in Australia anyway, mm-hmm. so... Yeah. So obviously the time and money factors are massive for people in Australia and in the States because university is very expensive and so if we've got other options to get pathways to education and employment then people are interested. Have you got any information about how it is in other countries where perhaps tertiary education is much better funded? For example, you know, if you look at Denmark or, you know, some of the Nordic models where tertiary education is more accessible? Do we know if there's this buy-in? I mean, we don't, uh, I don't have any statistics, but we can use some of the economic activity as, uh, as an indicator. So, like, um, I know, like, a couple of the companies that, um, that are talked about in my blurb, like Academy XI and The Wagon, like, both of those are expanding very rapidly. So, Academy XI is homegrown right here in Australia, and they're already, uh, I, I believe it's not a seeker, they're looking at Singapore, and I know that's something that was on the radar a while ago. The Wagon is around the world, and they're based out of France. So, it's, it's, 
I don't know that it's necessarily tied to how high quality tertiary education is, and it's more a matter of like, what are people going and choosing to do in tertiary education? Because we're still not necessarily getting the people um, coming out of uni that we want uh, into these jobs. And so these companies still have a foothold in the market. That's a good point. There are people who are mixing both models and they get out of university and they're like, right, but I just need a little practical experience. And they're about, they go do six weeks at a boot camp and then they're actually employment ready. So, you know, there's, there's definitely, it's like worth noting that it's not one or the other. Mm. No, we, we talked to RMIT earlier in the year about their accelerator mm. program where you can match up kind of um, like startup smarts and kind of mentoring with any course. So whatever you're doing at RMIT, you can also have this stream where you do some of this stuff. Well, and actually, I have a, um, one of my advisors out of the University of Sydney was saying that he's been strongly encouraged to start looking at partnering with startups and with other companies as well to start doing kind of a yeah, collaborative model um, between higher ed and, and the startup tech space. This is really starts to get yeah. really excited. I know. That would be so great. Yeah, I'm ready for. I, I think like there's a lot that academia can learn from industry and vice Absolutely. versa. And I'm really ready to see that happen. Um, I want to. I want to pick a little bit at the wagon because they they're doing some interesting things for people who aren't necessarily going to spend their lives programming. They're they're actually focused on business owners who are doing startups who don't have programming skills but need to run technical companies. Um, so let's talk a little bit about like what learning programming means if it's not necessarily the job you want. Yeah, that was something that was attractive to me about them was that they were very careful about saying, you know, we're not just here to cram like technical skills into everybody's brains. If that's what they want, great. But we're actually really interested in fostering a stronger literacy of tech in entrepreneurs because that is kind of, that's the future. And so it's a maybe an interesting question to leave people with to grapple with is, is, is programming the new literacy? I think, I think it's something thought so. we've been <laughs> arguing about that for decades now. <laughs> sure. I think it's still relevant. I think yeah. it's really relevant. It's yeah. interesting how that argument evolves over time too when we get more, uh, maybe not more, but different information. So well, especially cool. as we're more privacy aware these days and that literacy yes. becomes important as it intersects over yes. our public information becoming private or becoming government information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly having even just a grasp of some of the vocabulary of tech helps you navigate those systems better and, and define your own privacy requirements or define what permissions you're willing to give or not to give to different systems. Um, and, and like also, more and more people are working in companies where technology is fundamental to what they do. So being able to understand a little bit more about that, even if you're not the one writing the production code, it's, it's so useful. It improves conversations. Um, I, I personally fall on the side of programming is the new literacy and everyone should do it and also teach your kids and send them to school. And then how do we balance that tension with, you know, some kids, particularly the children of Silicon Valley, mm. so many of their parents having Steiner children with yeah. no devices. Yeah. You know, where there's a, a massive tension there. I don't know what the right answer is. Yeah. Mm. So we've had a few pictures of um, Amy up on the slides oh behind God. us for those who are here in person. <laughs> and for those uh, listening to the broadcast out there, I thought I'd draw attention to it. But there is this fascinating one where you're in front of a model tram. Um, oh, that's in Cremorne. Yeah. yeah. yeah that is I, rec I recognise that crazy kind of so, yeah. so what are the sort of things that you go out and present? What are these sort of things? So this out? was actually from WordCamp, or not WordCamp, this was from a WordPress meetup right here, right here in Melbourne and Cremorne. And this was something that I developed while I was at Uber, this idea of how to effectively share your subject matter expertise. And so we're doing almost like a, it's a talk, but it's actually me picking the curtain back on how I help people hone the way they communicate their subject matter expertise. So we're doing it in front of an audience at this point, which Dee is looking a little bit mortified about, but she made it through. <laughs> 
Any, any kind of final words? Like, what, what do you like about education in Melbourne? What's interesting to you from what you've heard about it? You know, my final words are that I think having been in Silicon Valley in San Francisco and seeing what it's like to be on the big barge and the ship that's established, Melbourne's kind of in this awakening moment of like, we're here and we're going to start and like we've got this, there's so much potential right now and it's just is so electrifying and exciting to see what can happen here and being amongst it um, with all of these amazing smart people who have a lot of really big and cool ideas has just been the most energizing energizing thing since I got here. Oh, go on, Amy, come on. <laughs> Everybody, it's Warren and Vanessa from Bite Into It here. We're very thrilled to have a whole lot of our team with us tonight. Unfortunately, not on stage, but do make sure you uh, keep an eye out for, uh, for them later and listen for some familiar voices in the crowd. Uh, it's a thrill to have a very talented artist with us tonight because we don't get to speak to that many artists on the technology program, you wouldn't believe. Uh, but he's a multimedia artist and an interaction designer, and he specialises in augmented reality, which is just so hot right now. I'm going to put some up on the screen behind us. If you're on Facebook Live, you really would be doing yourself a favour if you went and checked that out. But... Um, Mark Omatic is the name that you go by. It's, yes. your, it's your brand. It's pretty, pretty sensational. Could you tell us a little bit about your technical background and how, how you got to this space? Yeah. Um, so I guess over the last few years, I've been bunny hopping across various industries. Um, so I mean, uh, before all, before I get, got into actual work, um, I was in love with you know illustration and storytelling, and um, I never really knew what I wanted to do with that particular you know skill set. So um, I went into study animation at RMIT and then eventually fell into e-learning, creating e-learning experiences for RTO, so creating um, training scenarios. Was this um, the 2000s? Uh, around 2011, oh. I sort of jumped into it. So yeah. I was creating really you know, simple flash, uh, interactive, um, web-based uh, content, I guess. And then I did that for a few years and then slowly transitioned over into advertising, so creating motion graphics for various clients. So I eventually became a senior motion designer where I would consult with clients and um, you know, uh, provide them with storytelling solutions and, and yeah, produce them as well. So um, yeah, I guess for all those skill sets, um, I eventually discovered um, immersive technology and uh, AR and VR and um, jumped into that. I thought I could combine all these skill sets together to you know, try something new. So for listeners who can't see a screen at the moment, I wonder if you could describe like the <laughs> things that, that we might be seeing and uh, all the sort of thing that, that is up behind us. Yeah, sure. So um, I guess what I'm trying to demonstrate is a sort of uh, really different fusion between um, traditional illustrative and storytelling techniques fused with um, augmented reality technologies. So um, I'm trying to demonstrate that there is a lot of value with traditional skill sets that can be integrated into immersive technologies. I think there's a lot of magic and charm to it there. This so. one's one of my favourites. So for those who can't see, there's a, an illustration of a tram <laughs> in front of us. But when you put the augmented reality um, app over it, like a camera sort of interface over it, it turns into like a transformer, if you can imagine <laughs> that. It turns into a robot that's trying to swipe its little card and failing to swipe the Mikey. It's denied, yeah, it's denied. Mikey weren't too happy about it, but now I mean, you know, it's, it's a joke that everyone's used yeah, to. So. Now it's got tram rage and it's just totally given up. So Exactly. It's, it's incredible. It was um, fantastic to see that you've got a whole lot of works here as part of Melbourne Knowledge Week. Yep. And I, I wonder what are, what are some of the most interesting problems that <coughs> clients have come to you to help you solve visually? I guess I, it depends on um, 
depends on the industries they come from. They're sort of looking to um, ex like communicate their ideas in a more effective and engaging way that doesn't require 20 pages of documentation or um, watching a long 10-minute you know, video about what they do. So through augmented reality, it's almost like practical learning. You've got that object there in front of you. You can interact with it in various ways. You can learn um, on the spot. You can um, interact with it. It's just um, a much more intimate way of engaging with the subject matter. So um, rather than, for example, clients have dealt with, not dealt with, sorry, worked with, um, so working for various city councils and you know, boards of tourism, for example, um, one use case scenario would be there's an there's um, organisation that wants to promote tourism into an area. So by augmenting the map of that region, I can then um, demonstrate to tourists instantly what is actually available in that area and where to you know, check out the latest stuff. Rather than, wearing, rather than reading like a, you know, a long brochure or like watching a long video which you're not really interested in, you can get that instant, um, instant information right there in front of you just by using your mobile device. So. Do you think um, uh, a lot of organisations who struggle to tell a story in the first place uh, are doing well at using this kind of technology? Um, <clears throat> well, I think when you, when, you give, when you bring the idea across, when you demonstrate what you can actually do with it, um, ideas just light up in their heads and they, they have their own ideas of their own. So mm. um, during Knowledge Week, I've met up with like architecture firms. Um, I think there was an animation studio. Uh, there's a few other you know, different companies that come to me and sort of say, what can I do with this technology? So when, once the moment they see this stuff, they, their ideas flicker straight away in their heads and they can go ahead and create their own content, I guess. Mm. So yeah. it's really fun to play with. You walk up to something like this with a device, like a, an iPad or a phone or something like that, and, and you've got a static image in front of you and it comes to life before you. And as you put it on different angles, some of these ones are brilliant. You can go underneath them. And um, so if we're looking at a city, not only can we walk our way through a city, we can also look at the underlying like subways or water pipes or other things That's right. underneath it. That isn't there at all, and I sometimes catch people looking around their screen yeah. going, did I miss something the first time I looked at that, which is genius. But could you unpack for us a little bit of the way that you would actually go about creating something like this to give people an idea how it all comes together? So the techniques involved yeah, and stuff? Yeah, like just the stages. Like. Yeah, oh, okay. Uh, um, Do you get the pencils out and kind of, it's like maybe a ship yeah, with well, colours? Yeah, well, I always, um, because I'm trying to get that, you know, that traditional aesthetic across, because um, I guess that's sort of my trademark, um, I always work with paper first, always illustrating, so I usually work with ballpoint pen, ink that's wash, watercolours. That's it, you're off the tech show now. No. Yeah. <laughs> Go home. Valid, invalid, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I always work on paper first, and then when the official artwork is created, um, I then scan it and splice it, almost like a Monty Python cartoon. So I cut it up into the various shapes and then scan it across and um, then reassemble it into a 3D representation of itself. So for example, this transformer that you're, you're seeing um, was it's assembled out of 200 different drawing, little, little parts. So upon finishing the drawing, I then cut it up and then sort of unfold into an origami version of the work, a 3D version of the work. So that's just the first step. That's, that's the, the transition between flat to 3D. And then um, I, use a 3D, I use a 3D animation tool called um, Autodesk Maya. So that allows me to create the animation for the work. And then um, I integrate that into Unity 3D, which is a, um, it's a game engine. So it's a very popular engine. A lot of AAA you know, games have been produced by it. But it also allows me to develop the interactivity and the functionality behind the works. Mm -hmm. So um, essentially, the images you see are really just gigantic QR codes 
and the moment your device recognizes that image, um, the, the content loaded in a catalog in, on the device is then projected into virtual space. Mm. So. so what do you think the, the strengths are of this sort of visual communication style? Um, I, I think it's quite significant. I think it's really just another tool in the box for creators and storytellers. It's not necessarily the be-all and end-all of storytelling. I mean, one, like, you know, drawing or illustrate, a drawing or um, film will be just as powerful. It depends on the subject matter. Um, this will, augmented reality is going to be, it's going to be everywhere in the next couple of years. Um, it's going to be so common as, you know, photography or film. It's just going to be another common medium. And because, a lot of societies and cities and industries are embracing IoT um, internet thing. So IoT systems, um, we're playing with so much data that's been passed around through smart sensors and mobile devices and whatnot. And so we need ways to um, visualize that data in efficient ways. So, for example, um, in agriculture, um, when you have all these sensors gathered from um, pipelines and machinery, we need to be able to visualize that in real time and. and educate the farmer on what to do when certain things happen. So by gathering data, gathering smart sensor data, we can then upload that to the cloud, then transport it back to your phone and augment that data to overlay on top of certain machinery and devices. So through that, we can simulate, um, we can simulate how things will work or we can gather real-time data specifically about an object when obviously paired with machine learning. So with machine learning, um, your device will be able to recognize um, various objects it's seen in the past um, so, for example, if you've got a tractor or you know, a water pump and it's seen it before, it'll be able to identify exactly what it is. It'll be able to gather the data relevant to that, um, that object and sort of overlay it on top. So it eliminates the need for LED screens. Um, it just has that access directly through your, yeah, your smartphone or smart device. So. And I guess it's just kind of, um, it's a different type of concentration. So th there's this really interesting idea of kind of calm technology that um, is out there where we shouldn't be looking at you know, these silly things and, and what have you. Um, I just love the idea. One of my favorite bits is just um, uh, where it gets red on the traffic map rather than um, in 800 meters, you'll have a delay of five minutes. I just don't know what that means, but when I just see the grid with like the little red parts of the thing, is it, do you think it's gonna be really accessible for a lot of people to kind of turn their information and their data and their stories into simple stuff? Like is there gonna be a platform where Everyone can just do it. Like, there's all those yeah. there's all those bot tools out there at the moment where it costs you nothing to make a bot and yep. you can do it yourself. Yep. How do you kind of democratize this stuff? Not that that's necessarily a good thing for you. Oh, that, no, 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 that's yeah. okay. I know it's 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 inevitable. I mean, um, I mean, it used to be the case where photography and film used to be used to belong to an exclusive, yeah, yeah. you know, group of people that had the knowledge. But I mean, just like those, they disseminated. You know, into mainstream society, so mm. AR will be the same. Um, there are actually quite a few platforms available now that allow you to build your own custom AR experiences and plug in data yeah. into it as well. So there's, you've got Platter, you've got Cumulosity, uh, there's a few others out there that you can simply design your experiences um, just for your browser. Yeah, so. I hate that how is your day or how is your weekend conversation. It'd yeah. be great just to be able to go, um, picture of my cat, yep. picture of some pasta, um, and Punt Road was really busy, and you just go. Yeah, check like, this out, yeah. You know, yeah. So I wonder, um, with the at the moment we use quite a few apps to try and let us access these things. But do you think it's going to become ubiquitous in devices that just like QR codes did? They got sort of built into the hard hardware of our phones. Yep. Um, are you getting any advanced news about uh, Google Goggle type eyewear or other other eyewear oh, that, gosh, that might have embedded AR sense? There's like so many devices. Vision? Yeah, so many um, AR. 
goggles and headsets out there. It's really mm. hard to choose which one's the best. I mean, there was HoloLens, but that was, that was, um, it wasn't very good. Are all so, their developer kits, you know, working together, or do they make you work quite differently to be compatible with um, them? Some of them require you to use their own separate SDKs, but they're obviously um, integrated into universal um, development tools, like Unity 3D, for example. So everyone uses Unity, well, most people use Unity, but um, they've designed their SDKs so that you can implement them directly in without any, you know, little to any. Hassles. I've got to say, it was kind of reassuring to hear that Maya 3D is still around in some incarnation. <laughs> oh, or yeah, it's, it's very big, very, very big. Yeah. That's fantastic. Uh, finally, is there anyone in the field at the moment who you think is really standout and you would recommend that we, we look up to yeah. get ideas about where this can go? Yeah, well, um, you guys have probably heard of uh, Sutu or Stu Campbell. Um, so about a year, about last year, um, got in touch with him. We, we worked on one of the world's first augmented reality um, art books. So it was about 40 artists that um, got together and uh, yeah, developed prosthetic reality. And so he's been touring that all around the world. And he's really pushing the boundaries with um, virtual reality art too. So he, he did some promotional material for Ready Player One, which was recently released. So he's just, he's taken off in the States. Um, and he's really pioneering, um, really pioneering artists to, to get into the immersive tech space. So. Marco Maddock, thanks so much for speaking to us Thank about you very AR much for having this me. evening. Thank you. Cheers. Seven minutes, excuse me, it's 7.39 here on 3RRR. My name is Dan Salmon and I'm in front of a lot of people, so I've got a little bit nervous. <laughs> I've joined Warren and Vanessa here on stage for Bite Into It Live, um, and we have uh, Dave Coles in, uh, on stage with us today. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Dave. Um, Dave is a software manager and consultant. He has recently worked with, on a project with Guide Dogs Victoria uh, on a pro to prototype a cane to help vision-impaired people cross the road safely. Now, this is a really interesting idea. Um, I'd love to just start with, how did you get involved with a project like this? Yeah, yeah, great question, Dan, and thanks for having me, um, Warren and Vanessa, and the audience here. We, um, I guess, uh, Guide Dogs Victoria provide um, mobility services uh, to people who are blind or who have low vision, and guide dogs are a big part of that, but uh, their clients don't always want to use a guide dog, and some of them actually don't want to, don't want to live with a guide dog. So there are times when they need uh, other, other ways to get around, and, te and technology can play a big role in that. And so Guide Dogs Victoria is a pretty forward-thinking organisation, and they had this on their roadmap for some time. They've been working with a technology partner to try and solve the problem of crossing the road. So, um, as you can imagine, uh, if you're, a, I guess, people with uh, blindness or, or low vision, if they're not using a guide dog, they're using other types of mobility aids, and then the primary mobility aid is, is a white cane. Uh, but crossing the road, that doesn't actually give a lot of feedback. Um, we, we did talk with guide dogs through the process about, is it possible to just paint the lines on the road a bit thicker so that you can get some feedback from a white cane, but uh, that's, that's not really a feasible solution. So, uh, the, uh, yeah, so they're looking at other technology solutions to cross the road. And um, they'd been working for some time with a partner, hadn't made the kind of progress that they'd expected. Uh, I guess the kind of technical literacy that Amy and Laura were talking about, they had a feeling for what was possible. They weren't, they weren't sort of achieving those results. So uh, they, they turned to ThoughtWorks to ask, could we help uh, with, that, with that process? Could we work with their clients to, to help develop some technology to help them cross the road safely? Can I ask, if, if dogs are about 30% of the 
kind of workforce for, for sort of helping in, in this canes. Can, can you tell us what the other um, systems are or the other device? So obviously canes, yeah. is that the other 70% or are there other things? Or? Yeah, so, so, so I guess smartphones and mm. uh, dedicated apps and, and standard apps uh, okay. with, with accessibility features uh, are, are a big part of the navigational aids. There are yeah. a few dedicated devices. We did a bit of a, a market scan of part of this process as well. There are uh, ultrasonic add-ons to canes uh, that help detect obstacles above knee height, which can, right. uh, I guess, really spoil your day if you happen to walk past a phone booth, for instance, I'd like with a one of those hoods. Cane with a blow dart or something yeah. like that for people <laughs> yes. who annoy you. Just I need and, that and ankle height one for coffee tables around the place. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> and uh, and um, I guess a variety of dedicated navigational devices that use GPS as well. Uh, but these are really, I guess, GPS, one of the problems they were trying to solve with their previous vendor was that GPS is very noisy in a city environment if you're in between tall buildings. Um, and a two metre accuracy is really good for GPS, but really bad for trying to cross the road yeah. um, at a pedestrian crossing. It's the difference, right? The traffic, exactly, yes. So there's been explosions in the, the range of sensors available to us these days, and uh, you ended up prototyping a few things. Could you tell us a bit about those? Yeah, yeah, we wanted to, um, I guess when we, when we looked at the problem, we wanted to take a really, I guess, customer focus, uh, customer focus and client focused approach, a human centered design approach, but also bring in a few different technology options as well. And so uh, we looked at things that uh, could use, uh, we, we looked at how, how uh, Guide Dog's clients were navigating currently and the devices they were using, and so they were using white canes and they were using smartphones. And we thought, you know, those, those are two real clues to the type of technology we might deploy. Uh, so we looked at uh, some really simple add-ons to canes, and, and one of those is what we ended up uh, going with as a solution. But we also looked at solutions that would use their mobile phone as well, using computer vision, machine learning type techniques. Uh, I guess there are prototypes of self-driving car systems that run on a mobile device. You know, could we, could we provide a self-walking pedestrian system for, for road crossing with that type of approach? Um, and also looking at infrastructure built into crossings. So could we use beacons uh, to help people locate themselves or could we actually use beacons to triangulate and, and get people across the road as well? One thing that I've noticed walking around the city is that they've started using uh, light and colour with the tactile floor displays around traffic lights, which are, you know, when they turn red, it's red, and when it's green, it's green. Uh, that's obviously not some necessarily something with who has a visual impairment can deal with. Did, were you able to work with that particular technology with the cane that you ended up uh, developing? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so what we ended up developing was, it was very simple in the end. It was uh, just an, an infrared sensor on the end of the cane, which has a little infrared light as well. And so that illuminates the ground at the tip of the cane and um, provides some feedback to the user with a, a wristband that has a buzzer in it, kind of like a smartwatch, about whether the cane is, uh, whether you've placed it over a piece of white lane marking or a piece of black road surface. Oh, and it's like a, a metal detector. Like yeah, so it's kind of like yeah. a metal detector. So it's very simple, um, but it, it was the, I guess it was the device that tested best with the users. So, so based, on, based on user testing and, and user feedback, we actually had the team wearing blindfolds trying to cross the road themselves to develop some <laughs> empathy for what it felt like to try and cross the road with low vision. It's, it's interesting to um, think about whether, um, because there's constant pressure with technology to be fast and to beat the competition and to kind of get it out there, um, you kind of end up just kind of doing something a bit further along from what we've done before. How do, how do you convince people in these situations to say, you know what, maybe there's something that you stick in your ear or maybe it is something where you're, you're orally communicating to 
I mean, how do you get past the, the obvious solutions? I guess is the yeah. question. Or does that even matter? You know, I, I guess I guess the key is how do you how do you test out these ideas uh, in, with uh, minimal investment, especially for an organisation yeah. with with minimal resources. Sure. And so we, I guess you know you uh, you. you uh, Talked about the uh, maybe not being invited back on the show for using pencil and paper, but uh, th this That's is okay. a you know this is a we key might. technique for experimenting cheaply, and so so we did a lot of testing. There were actually uh, some of the other photos I provided had pictures of Lego Lego men and on crossings and sort of trying to simulate scenarios. So we did a lot, we did a, <laughs> a sort of lot of lot of low fidelity type prototyping oh. to to explore scenarios, and then. Uh, as we kind of assess the feasibility of, of building a solution, then we would move into building software or building hardware. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I guess on the, on the screen there, you've got a picture of the device, which has the sensor component and the, and the, wrist, and the wrist buzzer component. How, how did people deal with failure? You had the sort of four prototypes and three of them weren't quite good enough or not as good as the other one. Yeah. How do you navigate that as a team? And how do you go back to people and say, We've spent your money on three things we threw away. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a good question. We, um, we, I guess we spend we we worked with uh, the guide dogs very closely to uh, bring together a range of ideas, and you know, I guess we going on the journey of discovery together. There was an understanding uh, that some things would work and some things that wouldn't work. There were objectives to I guess guide dogs had a vision to be collecting data to improve the products. As well, and so this is where mobile and, and machine learning and computer vision really aligned with that vision. And so there was buy-in to testing that to, to get an idea of uh, how complex that would be to deploy as a product. But there was also a lot of buy-in to the idea of something very simple, like an infrared uh, sensor on the end of a cane and a wrist buzzer, because that seemed to have a lot less technology risk around it. So I guess you know, working with them closely, we had a buy-in that we should try a few different things and get a sense for them. And down the track, you know. There might be possibilities to integrate computer vision machine learning solutions with a wrist buzzer or, uh, or with other types of prosthetics that their clients use. It's kind of a little bit Musk in the future and a little bit Dick Smith for now. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. So you started to mention where you hit up against the boundaries of what the technologies could currently do with GPS and the noisiness and then the, the only two-meter accuracy, which we can understand why that's problematic. But were there any other sort of step changes that you could envisage in some of the technologies that you tested which would really revolutionize what you're able to do with them? Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a good question. I, I think the um, uh, the ability to train machine learning solutions on smaller data sets would be a big step change. So, uh, looking, we had to generate a lot of data uh, as as part of the the machine learning training exercises. We looked at techniques like we actually had a call out to thought workers around the world who generated something like 900 video samples of, of, of road crossings uh, to start to train the machine learning solution. We also developed a simulation environment to, to simulate road crossings. And so we're looking at generating a lot of data. And that was a very, uh, that was a very intense, uh, I guess, time intensive, compute intensive, resource intensive part of the exercise. And so that was one of the, one of the factors that meant that that wasn't the preferred solution to go forward with. If you could, you know, there's a lot of research going into training machine learning systems on smaller data sets. That sort of step change would enable the next the next iteration of solutions. Mm. But I was thinking back to what it would have been like 25 years ago to try and build this sort of thing. And you know, the uh, the 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 uh, solution has two Arduinos built in. It communicates via Bluetooth. 
you know, these things just wouldn't have been possible uh, 25 years ago. It would have been... And the weighed, cost of each it, of them as well. The cane would have weighed two kilograms <laughs> and it would have been wired. Two kilograms, why would that be a problem? Yeah, amazing. And, and so what, what sort of feedback have you been getting from the actual users, the people with vision impairment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so, so, so it's, it's been really great feedback so far to the degree that um, uh, on the back of the five weeks prototyping engagement, uh, there's been a patent application for the device, uh, and now guide dogs are looking for funding to proceed to the next round of development, which is, I guess, uh, a, a small production run of the product uh, to be able to test it more widely in market. It was kind of heartbreaking for us to uh, have a guide dog story where we could only have pictures of puppies up for a little <laughs> yeah. while. But I can really understand the limitations. I mean, plenty of people can't have dogs in their houses, you know, if they rent and what have you. When you were doing the user uh, interviews at the, at the beginning of this process, um, what sorts of problems kind of surprised you out of your, your test cases? Oh, I, I guess one of the insights that, that surprised me was that people fear going blind more than they fear cancer. Um, this is, uh, this is uh, I guess it represents a major shift in how you live your life and how you get around from day to day. And just the insight that just a small number of road crossings could severely limit someone's personal choices in their daily life uh, was, yeah, th these sorts of things were really eye-opening, uh, yeah, eye sorry. Um, that, uh, That's ableist language. Yes, it is. <laughs> but but, but this, this is the process of, I guess, gaining empathy um, for clients and really understanding what it is, that it, it, what a good technology solution means uh, to Guide Dogs clients. Hey, you're listening to Bite Into It, uh, our special Melbourne Knowledge Week version uh, live from the meat market. Um, that was Pauper Spit and Too Sexy for the Supermarket. Um, definitely look that one up. I've been to many Triple R live to airs. I've never thought that we would do one and have to freak out in front of an audience, but it's been tremendous seeing some familiar faces here and some new faces and having you with us for the show. So thanks so much for the passion and coming down and uh, I hope you've enjoyed having some visuals with our interviews tonight. We've tried to make the most of that opportunity. Uh, thank you to our guests, uh, Amy Gonzalez-Cameron, uh, Michael Maddock and uh, Dave Coles. Um, thanks to our team of volunteers and support staff. Triple uh, R is a station that runs on the energy of uh, volunteers. So thank you so much. Um, a big thank you to our sponsors, Mountain Goat, and to the City of Melbourne and the Meat Market for having us. This event has been part of Melbourne Knowledge Week, which is now on, and it is on until May 13th. It's proudly presented by the City of Melbourne. Uh, I'm usually looking for him, but Anthony Carew is not down here. He's um, doing something like this with his hair. There's two minutes to go, so he's probably just dashing into studios right now. Yeah, just pushing the button. He's um, very confident, that young man. He is, and uh, he presents the International Pop Underground, which is uh, on Triple R up next. Um, next up at Melbourne Knowledge Week, we do have uh, Candy Bowers and a life hack with Metadata in the City with Digital Rights Watch. That Yay. sounds pretty cool. Big thank you to the Bite Into It team for well and truly representing and helping us line all of this up this evening. Thanks so much, everybody. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.